Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the death of Queen Elizabeth II after seven decades on the throne and go to the UK to get a sense of the shock and sadness gripping the country. Joining us is Polly Toynbee, a columnist for The Guardian, who was formerly the BBC Social Affairs Editor, columnist and associate editor of The Independent, co-editor of The Washington Monthly, and a reporter and features writer for The Observer. She is the co-author of Dismembered, How the Attack on the State Harms Us All, and her latest article, The Guardian, is In Grieving for the Queen, We Also Mourn the Losses in Our Own Lives. We will discuss the royal family's future under a new King Charles, and the internal strife in the royal family following the departure of Charles's youngest son, Harry, and his American wife, Meghan, for California. And although the British sovereign's political power is largely symbolic, the monarchy plays a constitutional role even though there is no written constitution. Nevertheless, within 24 hours of the Queen's death, lawmakers in Parliament will take oaths of allegiance to the new King Charles. Then we look into how American political culture disempowers ordinary citizens and speak with Jedediah Purdy, who makes the case for a reinvigorated democracy to revive our weakened and ineffective political system and our increasingly unequal and polarized society to take back the ground that we have ceded to anti-politics so that we can entrust one another with the power to shape our common life. A professor of law at Duke Law School and a noted scholar of environmental property and constitutional law, as well as legal and political theory. His books include This Land is Our Land, After Nature, Being America, and For Common Things. And we'll discuss his latest book, Just Out, Two Cheers for Politics, Why Democracy is Flawed, Frightening, and Our Best Hope. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now from the UK is Polly Toynbee, who's a columnist for The Guardian, who was formerly the BBC Social Affairs Editor, columnist and associate editor of The Independent, co-editor of The Washington Monthly, and a reporter and a features writer for The Observer. She's the co-author of Dismembered, how the attack on the state harms us all and the latest article at the guardian is in grieving for the queen we also mourn the losses in our own lives welcome to background briefing polly Toynbee. hello so polly this is n- not exactly a surprise but it seems like a shock at least it's i take it it's very very sad and and there's a sense of shock and sadness in the united kingdom is that right Well, it's been expected, of course. She's 96. She's been very frail for a while. But nevertheless, even though everybody's ready for it, in a way, people aren't ready for death. They'll know that from their own family, that expectation isn't the same as actually experiencing it. I mean, she has been the figurehead of this nation uh, as long as virtually anybody can remember. And, uh, you know, I remember her coronation, but, uh, there, you know, it has been such a very long reign, covering so many different eras, big ups, big downs, and somehow she has managed in a remarkable way to stay above controversy, which is very difficult at times that have been deeply divisive and indeed are now. Well, seven decades, and of course, if you go back further, she was born in the Roaring Twenties. She was a child during the Depression. She was 14 years old during the Blitz in World War II. And then in 1952, she uh, became the Queen, and and 70 years later. Uh, So it's an extraordinary span of time and of the tumult of history. She became Queen very young, long before she or anybody expected. She had very young children, one of one and one of three. And uh, she thought she had quite a few more years of 
living a relatively quiet life as the heir apparent. And her father's death was very sudden when she was abroad. And uh, I think it was quite a shock for such a young woman to be precipitated straight into what she'd always been brought up to know would be her role. Nevertheless, she was young. But her youth was a great asset. It made her very popular and very young. She was, she was beautiful uh, and fresh, fresh young mother and, and uh, very popular. I think that, um, you know, the next lot who come after her may find it difficult to get the sort of popularity that she's had. Well, I suppose you're obliquely referring to Prince Charles, and he is at Balmoral Castle along with his sons who managed to get there. Prince Harry and Meghan were actually in London for a charity event, so they at least Harry was able to get up there. Do you think they were able to get up there in time to spend any time with her? I don't know. I think in the end they probably do have to say at what time the monarch dies, but maybe they don't. I mean, it's so mysterious and secretive what goes on inside the world of the palace that maybe we'll never get to know that or not until somebody leaks something somewhere. And perhaps it doesn't really matter. I'm sure that they've all you know, seen a lot of her. They go forwards and backwards. Um and who knows, we, we, we may never know what she actually died of, whether it was a sudden stroke, which one always rather hopes that somebody goes quickly. But what's remarkable, quite remarkable, is that within the last few days, she was on her feet and what's called kissing hands, though it's not actually a kiss, but a shaking of hands with a new prime minister. She has just appointed her 15th prime minister. Uh, and there she was just about on her feet but for the photograph, looking pretty good. And that's only days ago. Uh, it's quite astounding, really, that um, uh, that she has very much, as it were, died with her boots on. So given the recent uh, 25th anniversary of the death of Harry's mother, Princess Diana, prior to that, of course, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee was in June and she got COVID, did she not, in February. How has her health been since then? Is there any... Well, nobody ever knows. Yeah, you get lots of rumours. You know, you've had rumours from everything from gout to cancer to stroke to you name it. Uh, she said to have had it. And I mean, they did announce that she had COVID, but I think it was quite mild. Um, but we never get to know that. I mean, maybe her doctor will on his dying day write his, <laughs> write his autobiography and tell all. But in a sense, you know, perhaps we're just being too nosy. Does it really matter what she died of? Uh, there's no mystery. Nobody suspects she's been done away with or anything. So I think it uh, could stay a private matter if they wanted it to be. So how long before Polly Turnby that do you think that there'll be questions about Prince Charles becoming king? I mean, he is king, right? That's, a, that's the way it works. The moment the last breath leaves her bo body, Vivat Rex, they shout, and he is king that instant. So there is not a split second for we Democrats to say, hang on a minute, mightn't we perhaps like have a discussion about what might come next? Not a moment. And it's all carefully planned that way uh, to prevent any uh, insurrections, usurpations or anything else of that kind. So he is king. I mean, there will be a long, a long process of funerals. There is going to be a long lying in wait in Scotland. A coffin will be carried up the Royal Mile um, and rest in St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh. And then it will go on a royal train to London, where it will also be uh, on a catafalque in, uh, in waiting for her funeral. And then it will go to, I think she goes to Windsor. Um, so it's a long, long process in which uh, BBC and other broadcasters will have to find, spin out enormous volumes of words and language of uh, royal admiration and explanation of every kind of bit of the ritual. And we're in for that, I'm afraid, for quite a lot of days. because it's and, and no doubt lots of news channels will close down and... Uh, all kinds of things will not be allowed to happen that normally happen for quite a few days. That, that's what official mourning looks like. I think people have forgotten that. There was quite um, a lot of criticism when a lot of that happened at the death of her husband, the Duke of Edinburgh. And suddenly, 
BBC channels closed down and suddenly all kinds of other things were closed and people were very indignant saying, look, he's not king. How, how could you do this? It was thought to be rather um, autocratic. So we shall see how much of that we get. But um, we're certainly in for an awful lot of explanation of the minutiae of royal protocol, most of which was invented by Prince Albert in Victoria's day. It's not, it's not medieval protocol. And again, I'm speaking with Polly Toynbee, who's a columnist for The Guardian, who was formerly the BBC social affairs editor, columnist and associate editor of The Independent, co-editor of The Washington Monthly, and a reporter and features writer for The Observer. She's the co-author of Dismembered, How the Attack on the State Harms Us All. And her latest article at The Guardian is, In Grieving for the Queen, We Also Mourn the Losses in Our Own Lives. But amidst all of this sadness and ceremony... Uh, which will go on for some time. Do you think that, I mean, those that live by the tabloids die by the tabloids, and you have this weird (laughs) symbiotic relationship that the royal family has with the tabloids. So I'm just wondering how long they'll be restrained from mourning and then suddenly turning their focus on... Oh, Oh, they will turn on full mourning. They will have big editions with glossy magazines of all of her life uh, in colour and all of that. I mean, you know, they will, they will, will uh, relish this sort of long memory of her time, her era, as many people as possible to write about her. Uh, but I think there will be genuine grief. I would want to say there isn't because she matters. She is such a, a, a monument in all of our lives. I mean, I'm not a monarchist, but nevertheless, there she has been, this emblem forever, all my life. And she's suddenly gone. And it reminds us all of the passing of time. It reminds us all with a kind of melancholy of things in our own family, our own parents, grandparents, death, um, the, the moving on of things, the painful cycle in families. I think a lot of people will have measured their own families, their children, their grandchildren, by what was going on in the royal family. So it does mean something. It, she is a, a monument. And I think people's grief will be quite sort of personal, not because they imagine they knew her, because none of us did. We could imagine her being anything we wanted her to be. She was so quiet and hidden. But um, I think there will be a national sense of, of genuine upset and disturbance. And maybe some alarm, a sense that we're living in a very dangerous time anyway, plunging into a deep recession, a very divided country, just uh, on our fourth prime minister in six years. Uh, Unease that there is nobody to be relied on at the top. And this is, of course, a family that's been riven with pretty serious disputes, has it not, between uh, most of the royal family and Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan. Oh, there has been enough story in the royal family to have episode after episode of The Crown, which everybody here has watched with relish and enjoyment. They may have embellished it a bit, but plenty of stories. Uh, Children and all divorced, except one. Uh, The drama of Diana, the, the, the marriage and the marriage falling apart in such a catastrophic way. And then Camilla getting her man, despite Diana's uh, upset. Uh, Diana's desperately sad death with an unsuitable man in an unsuitable world. Uh, She felt unprotected by the crown. There is so much there in the way of drama. Uh, And the crown has has certainly kept all that alive. No, it was not. She didn't have a docile life. Well, I thought that some of the crown, I mean, particularly when it dealt with her uncle, the king, who abdicated for that dreadful American woman, uh, who was a <laughs> Nazi and was was sleeping with the German foreign, the Nazi foreign minister. I mean, God help us! And I believe at some point during World War Two, uh, this you know MI six were wondering whether or not they should assassinate them both. I mean, a pretty amazing story, is it not? That part of it, at least. It's pretty amazing. He was a very stupid, vain young man uh, and fell in love with an unsuitable woman. He was pretty fascistic himself. I don't think it was just her. They were both fascist inclined. And uh, yes, the abdication was a huge shock, uh, 
a great shock to the Queen's father, who I don't think particularly wanted to be king. And now, of course, we have the shock of much more, much lesser shock of Harry and Meghan disappearing off to California. And what are they going to do? Will they come back? Will they be able to make a go of it? Or will the shine come off them as they are less and less engaged with actual monarchy? Will they become rather like the Duke of Windsor, like the Queen's uncle became after abdication, a pretty irrelevant, rather sad figure on the outskirts of a kind of demi-monde in Paris? And uh, a sorry life, really. It's very difficult to leave the royal family or indeed to be thrown out of it, as Prince Andrew is finding being thrown out of it for his relationship with, uh, you know, unsuitable paedophile and, you know, a, a big trauma there. You're referring, of course, to Jeffrey Epstein. And, of course, he was not the only person to be sullied by a relationship with that dreadful man. Yes, but, uh, indeed, for an, an incriminating photograph of him with a very young girl. And yeah. although he's been stripped of most of his titles and uh, most of his position in the family, and I think Charles will want to keep him well away. Right. Uh, and what's, what's he to do with the rest of his useless life? He's had a pretty useless life anyway. It's a difficult problem for these princes that become detached. Well, he, of course... <laughs> hung himself out to dry with his interview and she, he was supposed to be uh, I believe Queen Elizabeth's favourite son but also wasn't Harry uh, considered her favourite grandson? Quite possibly shows she may not have very good taste I think uh, the intelligence quotient in the royal family is fairly low I would say their interests intellectual interests very few Charles is probably the cleverest and the only one who does have serious artistic and intellectual interests. The rest of them, it's, um, you know, it's polo ponies and dogs and racing and hunting and not much else. I mean, there's Prince William, the king after Charles, um, went to a good university, did history of art, uh, where he met his wife, Kate, and has never knowingly been seen of his own volition to visit an art gallery or any artistic venue except on duty. So uh, you feel that their natural IQ is not hugely enormous and that certainly Andrew was always thought to be the dimmest of them all and possibly Harry, not the brightest, went to Eton. We should have done, you, know, you shouldn't be able to do badly in your exams at Eton. Uh, they give you everything that can be given to you and he didn't do very well. Well, it is, of course... A strange situation in terms of the loyalty and the pledge of allegiance in the UK, in the United States, government employees, the military and the intelligence services pledge allegiance to the US Constitution. In the UK, yes. they pledge their allegiance to the Queen. And I mean, the symbol ER, Elizabeth Regina, is everywhere. It's on post offices and post boxes and God knows where else. So the change is going to be pretty extraordinary just in terms of optics, is it not? Well, all the post boxes stay. We've still got ones with VR in some places. Victoria, Virginia, <laughs> we've got some with ER, Edward, and GR, George. So we don't pull our post boxes out just because they've got the wrong monarch on them. But yes, the stamps will change. Uh, eventually, coins will change. But um, that's true. And uh, it'll all look a bit different. And uh, yes, notes will will change. Not that people use notes and coins all that much these days. But in terms of, of, of Charles being the brightest bulb and having some serious interests in environmental concerns, global yes. warming, etc., that's very encouraging, is it not? Do you think uh, that he can sort of transcend the kind of tabloid sniping that will inevitably happen and get some sort of gravitas? Well, the trouble is, the things that he is interested in, particularly, are you know, the ecology, the state of the world, the state of uh, nature. And these things are regarded by the tabloid press, which is almost entirely right-wing, the Murdoch press, as being very left-wing. So if he whispers a word that says he has an opinion about whether we should reach net zero by 2050, about, uh, you know, the melting ice caps, 
and, and the methane pouring out of the, the steps because we're not doing enough about global warming. Um, they will be incandescent. And a number of them said, you know, he's got to, he's got to keep his mouth shut or otherwise he'll be out. So they will be after him if he expresses a view at all. And insofar as he has views, as far as one knows, they're really quite decent. Well, that's a loss, is it not? I mean, that he has to be gagged by protocol and just sort of, you know, what, open post offices and kiss babies and do all of that stuff, which is what Prince Harry decided he didn't want to do. That's all they can do. We, because we have no proper constitution, they're not even as strong as an ordinary president in other European countries where a president is the guardian of the constitution. They don't express a view. They are above politics, but they're there to step in if anybody should overstep the mark in breaking constitutional rules. We have nobody to do that. The Queen has to obey whatever the Prime Minister tells her to do, or did have to, Charles will have to, which is insane because in the case of Boris Johnson, it was the Prime Minister who was breaking the constitution, who prorogued Parliament illegally, uh, and so that we have no backstop. And that's what's wrong with the monarchy, really. It's that uh, they can't act because they're not elected as a president, they can't act as a constitutional president should. I mean, you have a different type of president because you have a political president, but most in most of Europe, uh, presidents are honorific, but have that very important role. And we don't have a written constitution, and we don't have anybody to protect the unwritten constitution we have. Well, Polly Toynbee, I thank you for joining us and for, for giving us a sense of what's happening in the United Kingdom with the announcement of the death of Queen Elizabeth and taking us further into the <laughs> into the anomalies of a of a country without a constitution which is probably a big surprise to most of our listeners <laughs> well we have one which just not written down thank you very much <laughs> all the best thank you <laughs> and again bye bye and again, I've been speaking with Polly Toynbee, a columnist for The Guardian, who was formerly the BBC's social affairs editor, columnist and associate editor of The Independent, co-editor of The Washington Monthly, and a reporter and featured writer for The Observer. She's the co-author of Dismembered, How the Attack on the State Harms Us All. And her latest article at The Guardian is, In Grieving for the Queen, We Also Mourn the Losses in Our Own Lives. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how American political culture disempowers ordinary citizens and how to revive our weakened and ineffective political system and reverse our increasingly unequal and polarized society. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jedediah Purdy, a professor of law at Duke Law School and a noted scholar of environmental property and constitutional law, as well as legal and political theory. His work has appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Times, The New Yorker, among other outlets, and he is on the editorial board of Dissent. His books include This Land is Our Land, After Nature, Being America, and For Common Things. And his latest book, Just Out, is Two Cheers for Politics, Why Democracy is Flawed, Frightening, and Our Best Hope. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jedediah Purdy. Thanks. Thank you, Ian. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, your book is a cri de coeur that we need more politics, that we're in effect in the age of anti-politics. I think you could make the case we've been in that situation for some time. Yeah. But you also make an argument about we need an economy that empowers citizens and a culture where we are brought together as opposed to divided. And that's what I find extraordinary is that the divisions in this country, the polarization, you can identify some of the players. I mean, Donald Trump is, is the divider-in-chief mm -hmm. and, you know, his his mentor, or if, or if not his sponsor, Vladimir Putin, that's his strategy to turn Americans against each other so that we'll sort of do ourselves in and we unfortunately are obliging him. The military at this point is concerned that the political polarization is is affecting military readiness and cohesion. So this seems to be a clear and present danger that this is an America that's at war with itself. And 
frankly, what is it at war with itself over? I, I don't understand what exactly is going on here, why we are turned against each other, why there's so much hate and so much paranoia. Well, so it's a, it's a very fundamental and far-reaching question. Uh, just a few uh, thoughts about it. The political strategy that Trump has followed, which is in some ways an extension of his uh, business strategy all his life, um, he, he didn't need to learn from any contemporary authoritarians. It's one of the oldest forms of political appeal in the book, um, and it trades on the fact that under under certain conditions anyway, we care more about who shares our resentments and has the same enemies than we do about who agrees with us or what we have in common. So mass politics are really any form of, of you know, widely shared sentiment and identification is, is always ready to be turned in an aversive and fearful direction. That's just one of the ground elements of politics, really, of social life. Now, I think Trump has both accelerated and, and taken advantage of a cultural and media environment in which resentment and paranoia and conspiracy theory have basically been commodified. Um, what the talk radio and cable news industries of the 90s and aughts, and then um, Twitter and, and its own way and other online stuff figured out is that you can keep people coming back and you can sell ads. And so much of this economy is about selling ads. Um, if you keep people afraid, agitated, aware of who the enemy is and what the most outrageous thing they've just done is. So we have that cultural environment and then we have it, um, I would say, in conjunction with a political system that has been more and more disempowering for ordinary people of all kinds and all attitudes um, and has fostered the sense that politics uh, is sort of ineffective, corrupt, um, and, you know, at some level, it's all right for it to be a form of entertainment and a way of, of trying to poke someone else in the eye because we're not looking to it for anything more. Uh, there are some thoughts. I'll stop and, and listen to you. <laughs> well, no, no. We're here to listen to you, Jed. But I, you know, I mean, I'm, I, I guess you could single out Rupert Murdoch as, as a malignant force here. But sure. It seems a great to commodifier me, of resentment and fear. Exactly, and but I do think though that if you look at the current situation where Trump has been one step ahead of the sheriff all of his political and business life, finally looks like he's gone too far with stealing highly classified documents involving nuclear secrets of possibly an, a U.S. ally, and you would think, oh my God, finally uh, it's caught up with him, but. He's found a judge that he appointed that was put in by the Federalists, and Leonard Leo is the head of the Federalists through his extraordinary skill at uh, raising dark money, and he's got six of the judges on the Supreme Court are, uh, have come from his list along with this unqualified judge down in Florida who literally did the bidding of the president and more. He, she actually gifted him by freezing the Department of Justice's criminal investigation into Trump's activities. So if you look at that and broaden it out as the strategic project of the Federalists and the right wing, which is basically funded by plutocrats, uh, and now, of course, Leonard Leo has been given $1.6 billion by a plutocrat, and he's, he's going to spend that on the November elections. So they also, of course, the Supreme Court, that these justices that came off Leonard Leo's lists they were the ones, including John Roberts, of course, that um, came up with Citizens United, which has been the, the means by which the plutocracy has essentially taken over. So to my mind, I see this country. Now, you obviously are going to tell us the opposite, and I hope we can talk about the good news. But the bad news to me is that there is a takeover underway of the United States, and it's a combination of laissez-faire capitalism and moral authoritarianism. Well, that bottom line isn't wrong. I think the question is, what what chapter are we in? 
Oh, is it is it the sixth chapter of six or is it the second chapter of six? And of course, you never know that when you're um, in the middle of of the drama. Um, I, I, let's talk a little more about the Supreme Court and about Trump, um, because I I think it, it's helpful when we think about the condition of American democracy, which is not great by any means, it's helpful to remember that you know, Trump has, has been defeated twice at the polls. He's been defeated both times. He ran by decisive measures of the Americans who came to the polls, even in a country where many citizens are disenfranchised, where many people who are not citizens but make their lives here are disenfranchised, and where it's not always easy to get to the polls. He has depended, how to put it, the very fact that he got to the White House, left with those documents, and now we're talking about whether he's going to be prosecuted, depended on the features of the Constitution that baffle and thwart majorities. The, the Electoral College is the, is the first thing here. Trump was the uh, second president to be elected in the last you know, 20, 22 years um, without a majority of the national popular vote in the face of, a, in the, face of the national popular vote, um, thanks to the Electoral College. And Trump's ability, the Republican Party's ability, to dominate the Supreme Court, despite the fact that there's been only one Republican president, and of course the president nominates the justices, who's won a popular majority uh, since George W. Bush did it uh, in 1988. How is that possible? Some of it is, is the luck, who, who dies when. Of course, that macabre fact about having a life-appointed set of, of rulers uh, but it's also very much the conjunction of the Senate being an anti-majoritarian institution that confirms the justices and the Electoral College being an anti-majoritarian institution that puts the president in. So what I'm, what I'm getting at is that we have a constitutional system that we were for a long time in the habit of thinking of as being basically democratic and basically a thing to, to line up with and defend. We basically identified the Constitution with our core values of the rule of law, the basic liberal principle, not even meaning it in a very partisan way, and democracy. And it turns out that it stands in the way of democracy in a fashion that has allowed the Republican Party to build a minority rule strategy that has tended to undermine both the rule of law and liberal principle. So I think we, I think if we, uh, if we want to fight for American democracy, uh, in part, requires a sort of clear-eyed view of what the problems are. And some of the problems are certainly of those of individuals, Donald Trump's personality, which is astonishing. It's an astonishing, uh, almost Shakespearean sort of extreme of, uh, well, you know, we could lay out a series of adjectives. Um, but it's also a it's also a matter of the system in in which in which he can take power and which his party can take power and the kind of strategy that it uh, that it fosters. Well, you do wonder whether the battle can be won. That I mean, the uh, in the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We've reached a point in this country where so many people on Trump's team in the cult, if you will, believe that civil war is inevitable. Uh, and they're operating on what they believe is the cause of freedom and, and liberty. So we are in an ironic situation where the concept of liberty, this distorted Second Amendment fundamentalist interpretation of liberty, is threatening life and the pursuit of happiness. So, Absolutely. What is it going to take then? I mean, you, you've laid it out in the sense that the anti-majoritarian project of the right wing in this country has been incredibly successful. So there are workarounds with the Electoral College, which are pretty simple and workable. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether they can get to a majority. And how do you deal with the, the fact that there are states like Wyoming 
and, <clears throat> and other red states that allow the Republicans to be able to conduct this anti-majority rule. Uh, I mean, obviously, right. the Democrats have a couple of small states like Rhode Island and Delaware, but as far as I can tell, the only solutions I've heard uh, you know, make Washington, D.C. a state and Puerto Rico a state. So these seem kind of random as opposed to structural. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's right. I, I guess I think of, of there as being two kinds of paths, broadly speaking. Um, but I guess there are three. One is, is you keep fighting with one hand tied behind your back and try to get majorities big enough and broad enough that it doesn't matter that we have a constitutional system that allows for minority rule. Uh, and that's, of course, what the Democratic Party is constrained to do day to day. Um, then there's a sort of middle path, and things like D.C. statehood and Puerto Rico statehood are instances of it. So is the National Popular Vote Initiative that you mentioned. I think of those as akin to the uh, reform of the House of Lords in the UK. And they can have all long had this upper house of peers, and they continue to have an upper house of peers. It's a bizarre institution in a modern democracy. But they've just changed what it means again and again and again, so that its ability to represent a real counterweight to the majorities in the House of Commons and to be a base of hereditary class power has, has been <clears throat> whittled down to very, very little. So things, things like working within the existing structure to make its anti-democratic features less consequential, that's the second. And you could add in even slightly quirkier, less familiar ideas that I think not out of range, like changing uh, the voting rules of the Senate so that you could actually, to some degree, um, weight the value of a vote to the population of the state state represented as uh, unfamiliar um this court might question its constitutionality but you, you could do something like that so then there's, there's a more radical uh approach i think it's a more genuinely democratic approach it's also a more dangerous one i guess um it will certainly feel more dangerous to people and that's to push for reforming the most reforming the real choke point in the existing constitution that is its fifth article, the article that sets out the process for constitutional amendment itself, and which requires the approval of both houses of the state legislatures of three quarters of the states, which means a fairly small number of states representing quite a small share of the population uh, can veto any proposed change in the Constitution. <clears throat> it's because our Constitution is effectively unamendable in modern American politics, that it falls to the Supreme Court to hand down the last word on questions like the so-called right to bear arms, which, you know, parenthetically, the Republican conservative Justice Warren Burger in the early 80s called the greatest fraud ever per perpetrated on the American people. And in 2008, they made it a personal right. Um, it's also more fundamentally, it's because the Constitution is effectively not amendable, that we have to experience the Senate, for example, as a locked-in permanent feature of the system. And that's why we have to go to what I agree are somewhat random ideas about adding a new state here or a new state there that might vote in such a way that the Senate majority would look a little more like the like the national majority. So I would actually like to see people at least take seriously and not treat as alien or terrifying the idea that the first phrase in the Constitution, we the people, could name something that, that we could still be today, which is to say um, the living generations who have to live with the fundamental law in the Constitution would have a real opportunity to decide what the Second Amendment means, whether the First Amendment means that corporations have, and the wealthy have unlimited spending uh, power in elections, whether there is a constitutional right to reproductive autonomy. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, in short, I, I, I even go a little further in the book and suggest that you could imagine every 27 or 30 years, 
a constitutional convention um, whose results would be submitted to a national referendum. It wouldn't have to change anything. Uh, if we think the Constitution is as good as we often say, it might not change anything. Um, but it would be an opportunity for us to say that the fundamental law we live under is actually ours and to confront the ways that it's now used or now um, operates, even even uh, sort of inadvertently, like the Senate, as an anti-democratic minority rule device. So we could make the Constitution a vehicle for democratic self-rule rather than a problem for it. I would like us at least to, to think of that possibility as something that we should be up to. And we're continuing the conversation with Jedediah Purdy, who is a professor of law at Duke Law School and a noted scholar on environmental property and constitutional law, as well as legal and political theory. His work has appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Times, The New Yorker, among other outlets, and he's on the editorial board of Dissent. His books include This Land is Our Land, After Nature, Being America, and Four Common Things. And his latest book just out is Two Cheers for Politics, Why Democracy is Flawed, Frightening, and Our Best Hope. So as it stands now, of course, with this upcoming election in November, the polls indicate that the Republicans might well take back the House and they would immediately start impeaching President Biden, Vice President Harris, and, and have endless hearings about Hunter Biden. So that's what we have to look forward to. But conversely, as we've just been talking about the anti-majoritarian nature of the Senate and how perhaps to work around that, it looks as if the, the Democrats have a chance of perhaps even increasing their majority in the Senate. So to the extent that the senators have to represent the whole state as opposed to these gerrymandering districts that the House Republicans and, and to some extent Democrats have worked out, there, there's an irony there in the sense that the House is less democratic than the Senate in a curious way. But when you talk about a constitutional convention, the plutocrats led by the Koch brothers do have a plan. Again, they seem to be more proactive. They want to have a constitutional convention where, in effect, the entire U.S. Constitution becomes a blank sheet of paper and they can start from scratch. And they've got a plan to literally redo America along as a kind of plutocratic wish list. Yeah. So in a sense, I think, in a sense, we have to give them credit that they, they take, they, they take these institutions seriously and understand that they are vehicles to try to shape the future of the country. Um, they understood for decades, while liberals were rather naive and complacent about it, that the courts are vehicles of, of power, and they understand that constitution-making is a vehicle of power. They're not wrong about that. Um, now, there is a problem that to the extent that they're, they're going to be able to pull anything off, it will depend on um, taking advantage of the small state skew uh, and taking advantage, of course, of the power of money in politics in ways that do have this, this basically anti-democratic uh, tilt. But I guess, I guess fundamentally, I, I think that the fact that they are, um, they are doing this, uh, it can be taken to reinforce the liberal sense, which I think is, is real and widespread, that thinking about constitutional amendment or constitutional convention is just, it's just out there. It's just off the wall. Um, it's, it's like citizen sheriffs and militias and other kind of tricorder hat stuff uh, and should be left to the, to the far right. Um, I think the idea that the Constitution's fundamental law is something that living generations who will live with it, after all, who have to live with it, can shape is, is not wrong. And that, frankly, we should, uh, we should meet them on that, on that ground um, with an unapologetic appeal to democratic principles. That doesn't mean I'm, I'm excited by the ALEC-led plan um, or that my eyes light up, light up when I see it, but I, 
I think it, it's sort of important to distinguish between the, the content and the and the form, if you will, and and to uh, to say that the form of constitutional amendment as a form of constitutional politics is itself potentially better and potentially more democratic than just channeling all our constitutional questions through the courts, which is what we've been in the habit of doing and which first is intrinsically not very democratic and second has has anyway stopped working out very well for for progressives and actually hasn't been going very well for decades. So it's, it's taken people a while to catch up. It's really the shock of the Dobbs decision and some of the gun decisions that have turned you know, widespread liberal and, and even centrist attention to what the courts are doing. Though they've been doing it, as you said, with cases like Citizens United from 2010 and the first big gun case in 2008 for a long time. So the idea of a constitutional convention, of course, does have its hazards, as is made clear by the fact that ALEC has been working on it at state legislatures. I don't know how many they've signed up to get to the two-thirds majority. It, but they're... It depends how you count. You know, there are a lot of questions about what, about what exactly counts. In some cases, they've, I think they've passed it and, and, gone, and gone back on it, and what does that mean? A lot, lot of very lawyerly procedural questions. But I'm sorry, you're driving it at a larger point. Well, no, I, I don't know what the the number is of, of how close they are, but they're within three or four of getting to their threshold. But the point you're you're making is that the vacuum on the left should be filled by a citizens' pro democracy, pro politics manifesto. So, where's the the spark for that? Where is where's the modern Tom Paine? That's a good question. That's a very good question. I mean, Charles, the Koch brothers are, are, if that's the best that they've got on the other side, obviously they've got unlimited money. So if they would, if it became a referendum like we have here in the state of California, where you have all these malicious propositions on the ballot, the latest of which are a bunch of gambling companies, mm-hmm. you know, Steve Wynn and all these people mm-hmm. are trying to sell the California public that they really care about homelessness. And if you vote for Proposition 27, you mm-hmm. will solve the homeless problem when, in fact, everybody's laptop and phone will become a de- gambling device and all the money will go out of state yeah. to all these crooks in Las Vegas, etc. So that's an example of you know, how money can really distort politics. So if you had a referendum on a constitutional convention, that seems hazardous at the very least. I think that the idea in your book is, I think, is the beginning of a conversation, isn't it? That we really yeah, need to th- yeah. think about this because there's really a way, and the Founding Fathers gave us this mechanism to reinvent the country. We just need to figure out what it is we want and go ahead and get it done and not be intimidated by a couple of aging plutocrats who are obviously have endless money, but, you know, endless greed as well. Well, I can't, can't disagree with the last bit. Uh, and it, what you say uh, is exactly right. I don't know. How could I know? How could any one person know the right way? To do this. So fundamentally, it is the beginning of a conversation. It's the beginning of a conversation that I hope will grow and draw people in. Um, I think we need to see that the founding fathers did, did two things. They did grant, uh, create a constitution, which claims by its own terms that its authority as fundamental law comes from the fact that it's authored by the people themselves in a special form of politics. Um, and that only when we do ratify constitutional language, do we act as we the people in the language of the, of the Constitution. So that's very powerful, that idea that the Constitution is a vehicle for settling some fundamental questions about how we're going to live. Um, at the same time, they conjured that possibility up, and they sort of put it to sleep with the ratification procedures they, uh, they created. Or at least history has made the Constitution very, very, very hard to amend because of the conjunction of their ratification procedures, which already pretty much required consensus or something close to it, uh, and the uh, geographic polarization and, and expansion of the country. Um, so 
They gave us, they did something, as in so many respects, inspiring but imperfect. And it's, it is up to us to try to take the best of it and make it work better under new circumstances. That's true of, of the Constitution and self-rule democracy, as, as it has been true of a lot of other things, like the idea of liberty and the idea of equality, where they handed down something that, as, as Frederick Douglass said in his great July 5th speech, that's sometimes called what to the slave is the, is the 4th of July, gave a sort of anchor of principles that um, could make the country great and good for the first time. But only if you took the principles more seriously and more radically than the people who announced them first. I think that's, that's true here as well. Um, so now to turn a little more practical and then, then stop on this. I think when you think of, about what you would want a constitutional process to achieve, I think you, you would need a convention structure that would ensure a broad representation from society that would ensure uh, a kind of responsible or make as likely as possible a responsible filtering of proposals in very much including the thought that most of the constitution as it is is fine and shouldn't be changed you you would want that to be true most of the time excuse me um and then ultimately i think you would in fact want to submit a proposal to a national majority or supermajority, you could have you could have a supermajority requirement for approval. Um, I think we need to be aware that whenever we require more than a majority, we're skewing things toward the status quo, and the status quo is never neutral. But there are reasons not to not to make change too easy. When you when we talk about the problem with majority initiatives, like in California. As you're highlighting, a lot of the, the problem comes from how things get on the ballot in the first place. It, it's sort of in the process of, of formulating the ideas and, and how they get posed and who controls that process. Um, I think to the extent that you can make that representative and as pro sort of rational and, and deliberative as possible, you then have to have a kind of faith that, as I said before, the people who are going to live with the result are better positioned to decide what their fundamental law should be than any nine judges or any 100 senators. So how do we, though, in terms of anti-politics, how do you turn that around? Because there's a huge cultural component to it in the sense that we don't have social democracy. Arguably, we had social democracy from 1944 to 1977, at least a facsimile yeah, a of it. A shadow not, of it, anyway. Yeah, yeah, not, yeah, like, yeah. not like the Scandinavians, but, but the fundamental idea that you pay your taxes and you get government services and politicians who are good stewards of your money get re-elected and those that aren't get booted out. But it doesn't work here. I mean, you have, of the two parties... The Trump GOP now has no programs, no policies, no platforms. They don't even have a platform. It doesn't seem to matter. What seems to matter is culture wars and owning the libs and, you know, that sort of hatred and bitter kind of anger and alienation and grievance politics. That's what's ruling the right in this country. So if you are to come up with a, an idealistic and hopeful plan on the left, how do you sell it to these alienated, angry people? Well, a few, a few thoughts. Um, first, uh, the, you can look several times across the very recent history of the country and see what a great appetite there is for real democratic mobilization. Uh, think about the Obama campaign in 2008, um, the feeling of that campaign on the ground in the primaries, and then um, what, it, what it did in the general election, including things like winning Indiana for the Democrat and a black man, for the winning Indiana for the first time since 1964, uh, winning North Carolina for the first time since 1976, astonishing. Um, and that campaign had a feeling that what was once again going to be possible to shift the ground and change the rules, um, that politics wasn't just something that was given to you, it was something you could do and make. I think something like that 
happened again in on the Democratic side in the Bernie Sanders campaign in different ways in both 2016 and 20. I mean, the the share of the youth vote, the share of the Latino and especially Latino youth vote in California, astonishing mobilization, astonishing kind of turn in people's sense of what they could ask for. So the feeling is, is out there. The hunger for it is out there. And you know, in a in a sort of perverse way, even the first the first Trump campaign, I think this has to be conceded. It was also a kind of social movement about asking more for politics than the people who were drawn to the campaign felt it had been giving them, and that absolutely turned rapidly and was actually from the beginning. Uh, from the beginning, it was in a register of identitarian appeal, fear and bigotry. Uh, no, no question about that. But all of these campaigns, the good and the bad, and the Trump campaign was very much, very much the bad from the start. They've all been in some ways responses to a pervasive political disempowerment. Most people know that most of people's opinions, they know that their opinions don't make much difference. They feel their vote doesn't make much difference. And in a way, it's 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 easy, and in, in it's and more gratifying to hold irresponsible, aggrieved, kind of uh, flamboyant, in-your-face politics, like like Trumpist politics, like the symbolic and and identitarian aspects of Trumpist politics. If you fundamentally think that's that's all the politics is is going to be, it's either going to be bad entertainment or good entertainment, and this is your idea of good entertainment. So, I think the democratic gamble has to be that it's good for elections to have consequences in terms of policy. It's good for policy to have consequences in terms of elections. That political empowerment actually produces responsibility, and that disempowerment breeds irresponsibility and that a part of what makes a constructive politics so hard to see our way to now is precisely that we are living with such anti-democratic biases in the political system itself. And that, that I think we have to take a gamble on the thought that the crisis of democracy is a crisis of too little democracy rather than of too much, and that it's not a diagnosis of democracy being unable to work, but rather a diagnosis of our failure to, to be democratic yet. Well, Jedediah Purdy, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Ian, thanks a lot for taking some time to talk. I always appreciate it and enjoy it. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Jedediah Purdy, who's a professor of law at Duke Law School and a noted scholar of environmental property and constitutional law, as well as legal and political theory. His work has appeared in The Atlantic, The New York Times, The New Yorker, among other outlets, and he's on the editorial board of Dissent. His books include This Land is Our Land, After Nature, Being America, and Four Common Things. And his latest book, Just Out, is Two Cheers for Politics, Why Democracy is Flawed, Frightening, and Our Best Hope. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.